Hi, everyone, and welcome to the pod. I'm your host, Nadia Osman. Today, the In The Loop team wanted to wrestle with an increasingly pressing issue of our time, climate change. Which government and non-governmental actors are involved in this fight? How do they advocate for these important causes? And what mechanisms do they use? One such organization we can look at to help answer these questions is the New York League of Conservation Voters, or NYLCV. They work to fight for things like clean water, clean air, renewable energy, and open space at both the local and federal levels. So, of course, there was no better person to have on today's pod than Julie Tai, president of the NYLCV. Due in part to her advocacy, New York State has implemented congestion pricing and enacted legislation reducing emissions from the transportation and building sectors, as well as the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, described as the nation's most progressive climate law. She's also served as the chief of staff of New York's Department of Environmental Conservation and been a primary negotiator for the Clean Water and Infrastructure Act, three successful constitutional amendments, and one of the most comprehensive electronics recycling laws in the country. Hopefully, we'll learn about how advocacy groups work within the government structures of our country, as well as a new bipartisan infrastructure bill that just passed Congress, and what hope we can have for the future of the climate. So, without further ado, here's Julie Tai. Thank you so much for being here. And I just wanted to start off by asking just a general question about what your organization does and what is your role as president and what exactly would you say your organization's mission is? Our mission is twofold. Um, We actually have two organizations. It's the New York League of Conservation Voters and the New York League of Conservation Voters Education Fund. Um, On the education fund side, which is a a C3 not-for-profit, we educate, engage, and empower New Yorkers to be effective advocates for the environment, and we encourage them to vote and to make sure that they're educated about where candidates stand on environmental issues, and we try to bring focus on that because all too often in general debates, the environment and climate change are not issues that are talked about, although that is evolving, uh, and it depends on the locality. Um, On the league side, we are the political arm of the environmental movement here in New York. Uh, We endorse candidates. We advocate and lobby at the state legislature with the city council here in New York City, some of our uh, other chapter areas, and we do work uh, with national LCV on lobbying of uh, Congress on changes to the environment. So fighting for clean air, clean water, and climate change, climate action through political action. Okay. And so can you maybe go into more detail about how you would advocate and negotiate for prospective laws? Like, What exactly would you say the steps are? And could you walk our listeners through that? Sure. So first, we develop a policy agenda. And we do that to lay out and identify the various issue areas that we want to work on in a given year, right? So there's always buckets of clean water action that we need to take, uh, clean energy, clean transportation, which is actually the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions in our country. Uh, Recycling and waste reduction, uh, one of our goals is to get to zero waste. New York City, we were trying for 2030. We are not on track for that. Um, for making sure we're protecting parks and open space um, and, and protecting agriculture and uh, farming and access to food, fresh food. Um, and we sort of look at 
all of what's sort of in the mix for a coming year. And we work with our partner organizations uh, to help develop a policy agenda. And we use that to tell the legislature and the, the legislative bodies, hey, these are the kinds of things we're looking for in the coming year, right? So for example, we know we need to tackle transportation in the coming year. And so we're looking for establishing a clean fuel standard to help decarbonize the, uh, the fuels that we're using to drive our cars and trucks. We're looking for a commitment to um, work on, uh, to move towards 100% zero emission school buses and transit buses, which is really critical. We're looking to make sure in New York City that we get 1% of our budget to be invested in parks um, because it's not been, even though it's 14% of the city's land. Um, so we work on developing those and we, we tell the legislature what it is that we're gonna be working on. Um, and it's sort of a, a give and a take here with, with what's viable um, in any particular legislative cycle um, and what our partners are working on and how we can work together to get something over the finish line. Then we will talk to individual legislators once there's a bill that's been introduced. Uh, we'll talk to legislators. Sometimes we'll try to get a lot of co-sponsors on a bill to help gain momentum for that. We'll hold lobby days with partners and, and ourselves uh, to educate lots of members of the legislature about the various bills that are important to us. Uh, we will lobby the governor's office uh, to ask them, or the mayor's office as the case may be, uh, to ask them to take leadership on an issue, to ask them to sign a bill once it's, once it's been passed. Um, sometimes we will send out action alerts through our to our networks and encourage people to write emails uh, or make phone calls to their elected officials to let them know that they care about an issue. Because first and foremost, um, people do keep track of that. When I worked in state government, you know, there was a list every week of the top 10 issues that people were contacting the governor's office about. Right? So you wanted your issue to be on that list because they care. You know, Truly, the squeaky wheel does get the grease. Um, so you want to make sure that you're, you're letting people know that you care. And they will notice, legislative offices will notice if they've gotten, say, five or 10 phone calls on an issue uh, from members of people who live in their districts. Right, because at the end of the day, they want they want to make the voters happy, um, and they want to get reelected. Um, so we will do a lot with that. We will also work on getting press, right, because that press is another lever that elected officials are sensitive to, and government officials in general are very sensitive to. So we'll work to try and get press on an issue to highlight the benefits of a policy that we're promoting or the problems with a bill that we're, we're, we're opposing. Um, we try to be more proactive uh, than reactive to things, but we certainly try to do that. Um, and we will educate uh, legislators. It's really about educating legislators and building coalitions where you can. Right. And would you say that this process is the same for both the local and federal levels? Yes, <laughs> more or less. Um, there may be different types of people that you've talked to, but it's the same basic process, at the, whether that's your, your, your local you know, council, your city council, or your state legislature or Congress. They're all looking for basically the same type of process um, of trying to build coalitions, trying to have policy agendas that identify what your priorities are for the coming year, um, and making sure that you're talking to legislature and legislators so that they know what you care about. Because like really, it's like 
what issues are you are you pushing on in a particular year now we have another tool and that's we have a scorecard so we issue a scorecard for the new york city council and for the new york state legislature and national league of conservation voters issues one for congress and it's a whole slew of bills that we've identified and we we say okay how did you vote and if you if you haven't taken a bill up and voted on it are you a co-sponsor or not we do it in a way that's non-discretionary so that it's only like it's a black and white issue it is not something that's gray um, to make sure that legislators know abundantly whether or not they should have a good score <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and we are it's not it's not meant to be a gotcha it's meant to be a yeah. these are our priorities so if you you expect us to support you we expect you to support the issues that we're working on and do you collaborate with other state environmental organizations as well all the time you have to work in partnership we have limited resources amongst any given environmental advocacy group or and, and transit groups and transportation groups and environmental justice groups we only have so much capacity right so mm -hmm. it's like people will focus in on, on various areas and then other people will work with them to help where there's a common interest in getting things done but we're working together right now for example the state of new york is uh is advancing seeking to advance a bond act uh that was approved by the legislature last year for $3 billion, and our governor is proposing to increase it to $4 billion. We have 173 organizations between labor and construction and the business community and the environmental community and local governments who are working towards getting that, that passed by the voters, which is something a little bit different than trying to get it passed by the legislature. A lot more okay. people to convince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what would you say are the strengths and weaknesses of New York State's um, climate change progress? Like, would you consider New York to be a national leader on climate change? I would, actually. We passed a law in 2019 called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that requires our entire economy to reduce emissions 85% by 2050 and requires us to have a goal of net zero emissions by 2050. It also specifies that we have to have 70% of our energy from uh, renewable sources by 2030 and, uh, and you know, carbon-free power by 100% carbon-free power by 2040. So we have very aggressive energy goals um, and we are, are not waiting around for the federal government to act. And New York is kind of the East Coast anchor on these kinds of issues where our economy is very large. So when we move, it makes a difference. Um, and it helps the other states around us make things more economic, to be honest with you. Um, since we are, you know, we are so much bigger than all of the New England states um, combined. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It does, it does make a difference and New York does tend to be a market leader and because New York City is such a big, you know, it's obviously the largest city in our country and it's an international city, when we take action here in New York City, it also has repercussions throughout the world. Um, so we try to, to move uh, in a way that's very progressive to, uh, to get things done here. Mm -hmm. And what would you say is the top climate-related issue for the New York population at this moment? I don't. When I think about the pop for for well, like everywhere in the country, just about 
transportation is the top issue, right? It's the number one source of, of greenhouse gas emissions. It's the only source of greenhouse gas emissions that's growing in New York State. Um, it not just as a percentage, but as an actual raw amount of emissions. Um, so that is the number one issue that we have here in New York. Um, and that is something that we are working on to try and get multiple different actions to take to take to make progress. You know, we're excited that Congress has taken some action and is investing funds uh, to help us make these moves. For example, the bipartisan infrastructure deal includes $7.5 billion to help us build out a national network of, an, of uh, electric vehicle chargers, uh, which is really important for making sure that people don't have what's called range anxiety, which is where mm -hmm. people are reluctant to buy electric cars because they're worried they won't be able to get to where they're going and without yeah. refilling the way they would. Yeah. Uh, My father has that for sure. <laughs> but most trips people take on the day to day are so short that that's not really, it's not a problem for the most part. That's not your problem during the week when you're driving your kids to school, when you're going to pick up groceries, when you're going to your church or a doctor's appointment. By and large, you're going to do all that. You're going to go home. You're going to charge at home if you have a, a driveway or a, a garage. Um, so that's not as much of an issue there, but there certainly needs to be a much bigger network so people have that comfort and so that they have the ability to drive longer distances. Um, so certainly transportation is top of the list uh, as far as that goes. In you know, New York City is a little bit different because so many people take mass transit. Um, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a subway town. Everybody knows that about the New York City subway is quite famous. Uh, a lot of people take the buses. We have the largest uh, public transit bus fleet in the country. We have 6,000 public transit buses and 5,000 school buses. So even with all of that, uh, transportation is not as big uh, as from an individual perspective as buildings are. Um, but transportation still causes a lot of pollution that impacts public health. And it doesn't impact it, it all fairly at all. Um, we know that many times, you know, highways are were put through communities primarily of low-income people and people of color, mm -hmm. and so it's really a disproportionate impact from transportation pollution on people of color and low-income communities. So that is certainly something that we're all mindful of and needing to make sure that when we're making changes, we need to go after bus depots in you know, disadvantaged communities first, and we need to start looking at what we can do to help move our trucks uh, to cleaner fuels and onto electric as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you just mentioned one piece of the federal infrastructure bill. I was wondering if you could elaborate on any of the other key points of the bill, um, and also if there are any changes you would have probably like made to it if you feel like it didn't go far enough in certain areas, um, kind of your overall critiques or thoughts on it. Well, first, it's super exciting that Congress has passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Uh, you know, it's been a long time in the coming. We haven't upgraded our infrastructure in a massive way with a real investment from the federal government in quite a long time. And so it's very exciting to see not only are they doing this, will help get people back into jobs, into good paying union jobs, um, but it will also help to address some environmental injustices that have occurred through the years and make sure that we're making a move to climate to address climate change. So 
In addition to the $7.5 billion for EV infrastructure, uh, the bill includes about $5 billion for low and zero emission school buses. Um, that's very exciting. Uh, we're, we're happy to see that. It's um, it, There's a lot more money that will be needed to make uh, the change to, to, to move the whole fleet uh, towards electric, but the, getting that investment now will also send a big message to industry that they need to start making a lot more electric buses than they are right now. Mm -hmm. um, there's about $17 billion in port infrastructure and $25 billion in airports that they can help, you know, to reduce emissions and move towards electrification and other low carbon technologies at our ports and our, our airports. Often, again, those are adjacent to um, or, or in neighborhoods that are pe primarily people of color and low income uh, that are overburdened by pollution. So it's really important that we, we make these changes there uh, to help accelerate that. There's about $50 billion for climate change resiliency efforts to protect against flooding and from droughts. Um, in the West Coast, there, you obviously there's fire and drought that you have as a, as, a, as a growing problem as a result of climate change uh, and then changing weather patterns associated with that. In the East Coast, we're going to have more water than we know what to do with. Um, and it's not going to be that nice, happy spring, you know, drizzle kind of rain. Uh, so it's making sure that we're prepared for sea level rise, making sure that we're prepared for um, intent, more intense and more frequent storms, uh, and making sure the infrastructure is prepared for that. Uh, we certainly learned from Superstorm Sandy, which devastated New York City and Long Island uh, and New Jersey, um, that we have a lot to do to make sure that our, our shorelines are prepared and our infrastructure along those shorelines can handle um, uh, the increase in the amount of water that we're going to be seeing. Um, there's $15 billion to replace lead service lines across the country and other funding to help us with uh, addressing emerging contaminants like PFAS and other perfluorinated compounds uh, that have been impacting our drinking waters, uh, you know, from historic uses, including in firefighting foam, uh, which we found in New York was one of the biggest sources of the pollution. Um, so that is that is really exciting. We've all seen from Flint, Michigan, that um, having old lead pipes is really uh, problematic. Um, and again, it tends to be more people who are low income, who are impacted by lead service lines. Um, so we're excited to see a big investment in addressing that issue now. Um, you know, there's billions of dollars that will be available for uh, water, traditional water infrastructure. Um, that's going to go through the state revolving loan funds. Uh, that at least half of the money will be available for grants uh, or loan forgiveness, sort of uh, zero interest loans. Um, so that's very exciting to make sure. You know, when our when our water infrastructure was built, the federal government paid for the largest tranche of it, and that has not been the case uh, in making sure making sure that's being maintained properly. So mm -hmm. this is a, a big investment that will come. Um, there's $21 billion to address legacy pollution that harms public health in environmental justice communities explicitly. Um, and I think that's really critical because we know that when you do all this damage, it's really hard to undo and it's a lot cheaper to do the cleanups than it is to deal with the public health ramifications over a lifetime, Not, notwithstanding the human, you know, the human toll that it takes, the actual public health toll that it takes as well. Um, right. And there's 
there's about um, a little over a hundred billion dollars to modernize and expand transit and, and rail networks, um, including upgrading those to uh, to make transit buses uh, zero emission vehicles as well. Um, that is really exciting. I believe it's the largest investment in public transit ever, um, and that's. That is really crucial. Um, we need people to be using mass transit. It needs to be reliable, it needs to be affordable, and needs to be modernized. We are way behind the curve on this. You know, you go to Europe, you go to Asia, people are taking, you know, fast trains in ways that we don't have them. Um, most cities aren't don't have the robust uh, rail network that New York City has. Um, and even we are looking to expand and, and continue to grow uh, the subway system to make sure that's accessible to more parts of New York City. Um, right. So that yeah. is something that is like super exciting. And the last major piece in there, there's a lot, right? There's it's like this yeah. is what happens <laughs> when you pass a 1.2 trillion dollar bill. There's a lot going on. Uh, there's about 60 billion dollars in there to upgrade our power infrastructure and to help start the transition to renewable clean energy. Mm -hmm. Really, the transmission network, as we saw from Texas, uh, really needs to be upgraded and modernized and it needs to be able to handle uh, taking power from disparate sources in a way that we didn't need to in the past. Before, you had a power plant and it, it sent it to all the places. Well, now you're taking power from solar plants all across the country and from wind farms. Uh, and you're trying to bring it, move it around the network. So it really needs to be uh, to modernize. Um, so we're super excited that Congress has passed all of these pieces, but this is only one part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most people don't realize that there's still the Build Back Better bill or like the main, that part is also still in Congress. Do you, are, are there, can you explain to our listeners if that, those are different pieces of climate related issues? Um, and how do they differ? Sure. So there's there's two bills out there, right? Congress has passed, right, uh, this bipartisan infrastructure deal. Uh, they passed it last month, I think, last month. It was when it was finalized by both houses. Uh, the, the Senate had passed it quite a while before that. Um, so we're very excited uh, that that got done. It's $1.2 trillion. It's going to get the ball rolling. It's going to get people back to work. It's going to make sure that we're we're modernizing our infrastructure and getting ready for climate change as part of that. But really, it's not the climate bill, right? There's a, there's there's those pieces, and those are big important pieces. But there's a lot more we need to do to take action on climate change. And the Build Back Better Act, which is a, the second bill that's currently being negotiated, that did pass the House of Representatives last week, and is being um, negotiated in the Senate right now. Senator Schumer is working with uh, other members of the Senate conference to help get that passed, hopefully before Christmas time, if we're lucky. Um, but that includes uh, $550 billion specifically to tackle climate change, right? Mm -hmm. There are other pieces that are included that aren't related to the environment as well. Uh, they call it the human infrastructure bill, but the climate change pieces of it are by and large are in fact still infrastructure. Um, it's it's there's tax credits in there to encourage investments in renewable energy development. So that's wind, that's solar, that's hydropower, it's battery storage, um, it's the transmission lines that we have out there. Um, all of that in, in green hydrogen, 
Um, that there's a lot of tax credits that would help encourage private sector investments in those types of technologies to help us make the move, the transition away from fossil fuels to clean energy future. Uh, there are tax credits for electric vehicles. So for if you wanted to buy a new car, they would give you up to $12,500 per vehicle for uh, certain vehicles. That's if it's made in America with union labor. Um, so there are various uppers to try and encourage people to buy cars that are, are providing support for good jobs as well. Um, there's um, funding again for uh, resiliency to making sure that we're investing in climate smart agriculture, we're investing in climate smart forestry because uh, agriculture and our lands and making sure that they're being used well uh, can really make a huge difference. You know, planting a tree still makes a huge difference as far as like absorbing carbon, um, but we need, we do need to use our forests wisely because we, we still need trees uh, to help us with paper and things like that. Um, we need to make sure that we're doing, you know, coastal restoration and we're investing in our urban parks. Um, there is an exciting proposal to establish a civilian climate core which is similar to AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps, where it would help uh, establish a, a workforce of about 300,000 people uh, that would enable us to, um, to do some climate projects and also give people some job skills. Um, oh, that's so really interesting. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, that's a really exciting component of this. Um, I don't have in front of me how much money is available for that. But it is it is very exciting um, to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So those are sort of the major provisions. Um, this this bill is something that we are pushing very hard at the League of Conservation Voters throughout the country to try and get this done this year um, because we've been behind the eight ball as far as taking action on climate change, and this is really where. Yeah. Uh, the rubber meets the road, and it's time. Like we need, we need these investments now to jumpstart the technology, you know, which has already started moving. But this will really accelerate and and firm up how we can rely on this clean energy future um, and move us in a much more rapid way to away from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And kind of on, further on this idea of legislation. Um, Maybe this is a completely different point, but I was I, I was kind of struck by Greta Thunberg's comments at the COP26 conference recently where she said or she claimed that the conference was a quote unquote failure because it failed to achieve drastic emission cuts. Um, but it's still, you know, they had many uh, they, they issued a slate of promising goals. Um, but so do you think in the fight against climate change, it's important to have environmental laws be far reaching as possible? Or is it kind of like a take what you can get scenario? How do you how do you balance that? I think it's a little bit of both, right? You need to have aspiration, but you also need to have progress, right? If we're if we just keep waiting for the perfect, then we're not going to be making the progress that we need to make um, while we're trying to get to that longer term goal. Um, so I do think it's a it's always a balance of of needing to keep pushing the envelope to keep making change. Um, but you, you need to say like, okay, this is as good as we're going to get right now. Uh, let's take that so we can move the ball forward um, while we're continuing to fight for more aggressive actions. And, and 
helpful, hopefully, as you move forward, uh, it becomes more affordable, becomes more accepted, more people um, will take things up and take them on. But I, I, it's a little bit of both. You can't, in my view, you can't just wait, hold out for the perfect because this is a, a world of compromises and everyone has different opinions about what perfect is. And so you want to make sure that you keep making progress and don't let, um, don't get held up with that. Mm -hmm. And maybe moving towards the, the side of messaging more, how do you, why do you think that conservation is such a polarizing topic in this day and age? Um, and do you wish it weren't so politically charged? And do you th also think, you know, right now there isn't really any snow in Chicago, which is like crazy because it's something December or whatever. Um, it snowed a little bit last week, but it didn't really count. Um, but so do you think as climate change's effects become more readily apparent then people would maybe be moved to join the climate change movement, uh, climate change movement more? Um, what do you make of people's attitudes towards it? So what's interesting is that I would say conservation itself is actually not controversial. We saw mm -hmm. Congress took action and passed the um, passed the Great American Outdoors Act rather overwhelmingly uh, to protect our, our lands and to make them more accessible for recreation. Uh, people wildly support investing in clean water, right? So it's not water. It's, um, it's interesting is that you know, what I'm going to describe as red states and blue states, I mean, blue states don't have as much clean energy as red states do, um, which is interesting, right? Like when you think about where the wind is, other than offshore wind, and when you think about where the sun is, it's not in the Northeast, uh, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, I was just in, in Syracuse for the last three days for Thanksgiving and, you know, it's it, like we were like, oh, yay, the sun is going to come out today. Right. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's just we have a, a further north climate. Um, we have offshore wind that will be big. That's a brand new technology for the United States. Um, and we're excited about that. But I, I do think it's a <laughs> there needs to be change, and I think people are starting to see the difference. We already are seeing it. You know, for the 2020 uh, presidential election, for the first time, there was uh, a whole town hall just focused on climate change. There was not one question on climate change in the 2016 presidential debate, right? Wow. So that is already a big evolution. Um, we've seen that here at the at the state level in, in New York and in New York City, where there are more and more, like you can't not have a plan to address climate change. Um, so we, we're seeing those impacts firsthand. I think everyone watching, you can't watch an episode of 60 Minutes without there being some story about climate change anymore. You can't look at the front page of the New York Times without seeing some story about climate change on it. Um, so certainly there is much more awareness, and that's going to continue to grow, I think, uh, about the, the opportunities and the risks associated with climate change. You're seeing that in the fact that the insurance industry is starting to factor these in. You're seeing it in the fact that the investment community uh, here on Wall Street, and I literally mean here, they're stock exchange is right up the block for me. Um, they, you know, they are taking into consideration what you're doing to move off of fossil fuels and how you're how you're moving towards a green energy economy. So I think that it's happening. Um, it may feel like it's taking a long time and in some ways it is, um, but there is a recognition and a growing recognition that coal is not the answer. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's kind of been shocking. I've seen some pieces of uh, information from scientists saying, you know, it's like too late to stop the catastrophic events of climate change, like kind of dis dispelling this negative this cynicism. Um, so I think to end, what keeps you optimistic in the fight for climate change, even considering people th saying, you know, it's way too late, there's not much time left, all of that? Um, I think we are taking action and we're starting to see progress. We're starting to see, you know, the fact that the, all the car companies are moving towards making uh, zero emission vehicles and they're making commitments to do that, not just to the public, but to their shareholders, I think is a really optimistic sign. I think all the youth that are involved and engaged on this, I think that is really critical and hopeful uh, that people still understand that they would like to have clean air and clean water uh, when they grow up and that they would like to still have a climate that they can have children in. Um, I think that's really, really hopeful and inspiring. You know, you mentioned Greta. I mean, everyone knows who she is. <laughs> um, you know, she's a she's a, an international figure of leadership on climate change. Um, and that's that's amazing. So that is certainly something that gives me hope. It gives me hope that so many people are willing to take action uh, to help move us off of fossil fuels. Um, and I, I have great faith that we are going to uh, move towards a green energy economy over the next decade that will really improve society as a whole. Um, both from a, a climate and environment perspective, but also from a jobs perspective um, and from, you know, a community perspective. Um, you know, you, everyone knows that you want to have clean parks, right, and clean water to drink, and you want to know that the air that you're breathing is not going to give you asthma. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, at least here in New York State, the government has taken action to put that into law. Uh, and Congress is taking action and investing. And I think those are, are really important things. We still have more work to do. Uh, the work is not over. The work is not gonna be over for a very long time, um, but we are making progress and we should view it as such. We should not just you know be negative about it and say, well, we're not doing enough. And we're not, we gotta keep holding people accountable to that, um, but we are making progress and we can continue to do that. It can't just be at the personal level. It does have to be at the government level and the business level. Um, but there's a lot that we can do um, and we're making progress. So I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm excited. And frankly, you know, what we're seeing is we had a record number of candidates seek our endorsement this year. Uh, we had a record number two years ago for the state state election, and we have another state election this coming year, and I think we're going to see more and more people are doing that, and that's because voters are starting to express that they care about the environment and fighting climate change, and they expect their elected officials to do the same. So that gives me hope because when the voters care about something, it gets attention by the elected officials. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a great note to end on. So, Julie, thank you so much for being with me today and, and taking the time. I'm happy to do that. Thank you so much. And hope everybody makes sure that you register to vote and you vote at every opportunity that you can. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you learned something about advocacy in the American political system and, of course, the importance of solving climate change through aggressive legislation. Most importantly, I hope that amidst the negative news of wildfires and hurricanes, you all have retained some hope about saving the planet, because we definitely have a lot of work ahead of us, and it's important to not lose that hope. 
So with that, for you, Shine the Loop, I'm Nadia Osman. See you in the new year.